that, that we encapsulate, and you'll see this as well, pages and pages of vision, mission, core value, all of those things that we seek to do to try and define what it is is unique about the role for Shehalem Valley within the community of Newburgh. There are lots of other wonderful churches in this community. They're all a part of the kingdom of God. God has them in this place for a purpose. And as God has called Shehalem Valley into existence, we also have a role to fill. Another aspect of the kingdom of God, to help present both to one another and then also to our community. So defining that, having that in our heads so that we know why we're here, and to be able to answer the people in our community who may say, well, what is your church about? There's plenty of churches in town. How can we communicate that reality without seeming like perhaps we're in competition, which God forbid we, pretend, or we think we are. We're not in competition with Christ's church meeting in other places this morning. We are in union with them. So these three phrases, open door, open heart, open hands, is really a way of trying to condense down what it is is unique about Shehalem Valley and our role within Newburgh as we have had conversations as I've talked to so many of the founding families. And we have talked for the last couple of weeks about the reality of what it means to have an open door. And we really talked about two things being important in what it means to be a hospitable place, both for believers to come as well as those who are questioning or seeking who Christ may be and where uh, they might fit into the kingdom of God and what this kingdom of God thing is really about. And we talked about the importance of transparency, that Scripture is exceedingly transparent about the human condition that we as a congregation are not people who are done being sanctified, being made like God, but there is this process that we are going through. And the reality is that the more we are honest and transparent about how God is working in our lives, both the joys and the trials, the more hospitable that is. And then we also talked about last week, it's not just transparency, but it's also celebration, that because of the gift of Christ, and what we have in the promise of the resurrection, that we have the ability, even in the midst of difficult times, to enjoy the blessings of God. Even those momentary uh, times of peace and fellowship, that we can enjoy them to the fullest because we know they are a foretaste of the eternal joy that we're going to have with Christ. And so even in the midst of difficulty and being transparent, we are also people of great joy and celebration because the reality is that death has been defeated and that our sin has been atoned for. And so we are people who can celebrate that reality. So this morning we move on then to what it means to have an open heart. And I want to put the text in front of us this morning first. It's Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's put... The text in front of us, hear now God's Word. My son, if you accept my words and store up... Again, I'm reading from a different translation because this is the Bible my wife gave me. And it's NIV. So if there's a little bit of difference in the translation, I apologize. Again, starting from the beginning. My son... 
If you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as you look for silver and search for it as if hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk and are blameless. For He guards the course of the just and protects the way of His faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair and every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart. And knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, again, we come before you rejoicing in the reality of the gospel we have already heard this morning. And asking again that through the preaching of your word, you would again, for a second time this morning, reassure us with the reality of the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And may only words of gospel be spoken, and if there are any other words, may they quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. We have in this text a promise of wisdom in verse 9. A promise of God pouring out knowledge and understanding. And if you'll look at the text, you'll notice that it's not into our minds first and foremost but into our hearts. And as we begin this sermon, I want to sort of remind us of two things. One, that for the Jewish readers of Proverbs and in the first century, that our notion of heart as being primarily the seat of emotion is not a Jewish understanding of the heart. For the writers of Scripture, the heart is really the wellspring that everything else comes out of. And so as we go through this, we'll talk about it more, but again, the heart is the origin of our being in many respects for the writers of Scripture. And so when it talks about our hearts being spoken to, what happens? Well, we see that there is righteousness and justice and equity. That as we learn wisdom, as our hearts are changed and grow in knowledge, that we should see righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path laid out before us. But the reality is that in our own lives and in the history of the church, we see righteousness becoming self-righteousness. Justice being turned into crusades. Equity turning into separate but equal. And sometimes we head down paths that at the beginning seem so right and good and honorable, and yet years down the road we find ourselves far from the wisdom and the kingdom of God. It's an issue of our hearts. What do we need to do? Well, first of all, we need to again recognize that the heart is the center. The heart is the problem, the reality of a new heart, and then how do we train that heart? So, four points. First of all, the heart is the center. 
synoptic form, what you love determines what you think and what you do. At the core of our being, if we are honest with ourselves, what we love has a great effect on what we think and what we do. In loving my wife and falling in love with her, it changes the way I think about other women. And it certainly changes the way I treat her in my desire to pursue her, to woo her during those early years, um, and now as a husband to serve her, to enjoy her presence, to get to know her. It affects my actions. My deep love for her has both a tangible reality in what I believe and what I think and also in what I do. But it's not just in that sense of love. It's also in what I love in the world. If I love my job, if I love a certain theology, if I love a certain... It affects a political perspective or a theological or philosophical perspective. If it appeals to who I am in my deepest being, it affects my thought. Very rarely can we teach somebody something different and have it change what they love. I was talking to a, 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 one of our sisters here in the church last Friday night, and we were, or Sunday night, and we were talking about this reality that so often we talk about the difficulty of getting God's Word from our hearts, I mean from our heads, to our hearts. And I'm wondering if that isn't because we're aiming for the wrong part of the body when we study God's Word and we seek to know who He is. That if we were aiming to put things in our hearts that we can worry that we don't, won't have to worry as much about how they get to our heads. But that if we put it in the wrong place, that it may be difficult to get it into the heart. But if we put it into the heart, that that will permeate the rest of our being. That we will begin to change how we think and how we act. But you may say, well, this heart thing, I mean, there's this, you know, that means love and what I love. And, and that's kind of emotional, isn't it? That we would think that we are actually driven primarily by emotion. But I want to challenge us with the reality that God is love. And then this idea that reality, that we were created in His image, is it any real surprise then, as Scripture describes God as a God of love, that our hearts would be the center of our being? As we bear the image of God, a God who presents Himself not first of all as the eternal and infinite brain, but a God of love. And therefore, it makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it, then that Scripture would want to deal with the issues of the heart. Because in restoring us to the image of a God who is love, our loves need to be reordered and restructured in a way that's reflective of who He is, of His character and His nature. So then it's not surprising that we're heart-centered beings. God is a God who describes Himself as love. His heart is regularly present in Scripture But there's a problem, isn't there? Our hearts, Scripture is not too subtle about the condition of the human heart, is it? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Sort of takes out the ambiguity, doesn't it? Part of our problem, of course, is that our hearts, after the fall, love anything and everything but God. And our desire to try and fill the God-sized hole of love that's now absent. We pour in everything we possibly can. We, in a form of self-love, either well, primarily self-destructive, we love everything but God. Our hearts have become wicked and deceitful. They lie to us 
about what can really bring us joy and life. In fact, one of the things that, that I remember wrestling with in high school was I was in this self-esteem class, which when you have a self-esteem like mine is kind of funny because I lack a lot of things, but probably self-esteem is not one you can talk to my family members. I have a pretty high view of myself. But I'm sitting in this class, and they were talking about Whitney Houston's song, The Greatest Love of All is Found Within Our Hearts, which is a warm and fuzzy song. And it was being used as sort of an inspiration for these young people as we sat around in this, in this uh, self-esteem class in high school, as an inspiration for us to find the deepest love we could, which was in our hearts. And as a somewhat cocky Christian kid, I was like, are you kidding me? My heart is the most dangerous thing. Now, I didn't really understand that until I got older. And I still don't understand it in its depths. God is gracious in not exposing me to the full depths of my heart all at once, because I'm sure I would be destroyed. But as human beings, we have tried to seek the greatest wisdom, to trust our hearts, as if somehow that will guide us. And Scripture says that is not the place. Your heart has become deceitful and wicked. It is deceiving you about what is really love and what is real wisdom. You see, if we're going to have open hearts, we're going to have to have hearts that are open to being transformed, to being converted. And the problem is, as humans, we try and do that on our own. We think that our hearts are just a little sick, so maybe a little diet and exercise, we can clear this up. That maybe our hearts aren't that sick. And so we, we do it by doing what? Well, we, we go to the mind. As children of the Enlightenment, we want to change our minds. If we can change our thinking, if we have right thinking, right education, right knowledge, then I can change how I act and how I view myself. And so one human solution, which is kind of like diet and exercise, is this idea that we can change our hearts by changing our minds. And we pursue, even within the church, right theology in such a way that sometimes it becomes our belief that if we have the right theology, that that will protect us. Now, obviously, I'm Reformed, and I've spent years, three years, studying theology, and it is exceedingly important. It is a guide. But my theology and your theology will never be pure. It'll never be pure enough to save you. It'll never be right enough to protect you from all wrong. If you just fix your mind, you will never fix the root of the problem, your heart. And some of us do behavior. That's kind of what the Pharisees did, right? The Pharisees fenced the law. They had so many extra rules that it's the behavioralist model. If I do the right things and fence myself off from the wrong things, then I can guard my heart. I can protect myself. Now again, God calls us to act and live righteously. It's not that our actions, our actions are immaterial or unimportant. Quite the opposite. They are of great significance to us. But changing our actions will not change our heart. We'll find out later, and I think you already know this, it is the result of a changed heart that our actions change. It becomes a comfort to us 
as we see ourselves act differently than we would have years before because our hearts have been changed. It's the outworking of God. But again, just changing your behaviors and doing right things will not create in you a new heart. Human beings don't have that. It's like trying to do open heart surgery on yourself. Your heart is wicked, and you will not change it by a little exercise and diet. We need something far more dramatic. We need a new heart, which, of course, is what we are promised in Ezekiel 30, 36. God promises His people going into exile, I will give you a new heart. Take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And He does that for His people. You know, sometimes we think, well, did it really take? I mean, that was a promise. It was a prophecy. But it actually, did it have any consequence for Israel? Was it, did it come true? It did, actually. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at history of Israel up until that point of the promise of a new heart, Israel constantly, they cannot help themselves but start worshiping idols. They're worshiping Baal, they're worshiping... Every couple of minutes, if you're reading through the book of Judges, for example, you get like 30 years of one judge who can keep people on the right path by almost sheer will, and then as soon as that he or she dies, what happens? Well, they start worshiping other gods. There's syncretism, there is idol worship throughout Israel's history after the exile, and the promise of a new heart, they never worship another idol. Now, do they make an idol out of their works? Well, of course, because still, we still need Jesus. But it is true. There is what we call a partial fulfillment of that promise. And Israel is guarded ever since then from worshiping a God other than the true God. But again, we're left wanting more because we see the idolatry and religious... Uh, it, it just... Morph. Sin is so deceptive. The heart is wicked above all else. So what does it do? It says, okay, I can't worship an idol. Well, I'll make an idol out of my religiosity. Which is what Jesus encounters in the gospel. And he speaks strongly towards. What is it? So how do we get a new heart? Well, first of all, we recognize that God has given it to us through Christ. That we can't change this ourselves, but that God, the great physician, the great healer, has opened up your chest and removed that heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh that desires and seeks God, that has that ability, unlike your heart before ever had. That you now have the opportunity to know and to love and to understand the depths and the wisdom of who God is. You have been given a new heart. But it's not just the work of Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Because I can know intellectually that I have a new heart. I can read about it. I can read that it's a consequence of the resurrection, that Christ has given me a heart even grander and better than the ones that the Israelites got in Ezekiel. I've got even a stronger heart. But I don't know how to use it. God doesn't, for whatever reason, just change my programming with the new heart. I don't stop sinning. But I've got this new heart. How do I know what to do with it? It's the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus even says, doesn't He, in John, I've got to go so that the Counselor can come. The Counselor of what? The Counselor of my new heart. 
that the Holy Spirit promises to set up shop in me and in you to teach us how to use our new hearts. Think about that. God desires and promises and actually does live within you. Me, inside me, is not a very clean place to live. Even with the new heart, it's still kind of dark. And He chooses to live within me. And He chooses to live within you, even in the midst of you still being a work in progress. He sets up shop and lives within you. How more intimately can God express the overwhelming reality of His love than to say, I will put my spirit into you. I will be present in you. That's how we begin to recognize and begin to utilize our new hearts. Is to recognize and to embrace the reality that God has put His Spirit in us to live within my filth as He begins to clean and renew me in accord with my new heart. But as we read in this text, we've got to want it. God promises it. God gives us the power by His Holy Spirit to begin to utilize it. But the reality is that the teacher here says what? You've got to cry out for it. You've got to seek it like you seek a treasure. Growing in our understanding and wisdom of how to use our new heart and its implication, brothers and sisters, requires work. Open heart in this three phrases describes our willingness to be discipled and to disciple one another. To be instruments of the work of the Holy Spirit in one another's lives that we might begin to understand the implications of the great and beautiful and strong and gorgeous and living heart that we have been given. And there's always that terrifying thing. I know we're Reformed, but God respects free will. And the reality is you can choose not to understand the implications of your heart. You can choose not to be discipled. I think we all know times in our lives where we have rejected the teaching of God and have gone on our own way going, well, I can figure it out on my own. It's just the way I am. One of the terrifying things about Scripture over and over again, as much as God is sovereign and intervenes, He also allows us to choose. And the richness and the depth that we have been given in our new heart, the wisdom that is ours to understand and grow in the infinite glory of God Himself, if you don't seek it like a treasure, you won't find it. If you don't long for it like you long for the greatest thing you love, He respects your decision. He may call you back. He may give you opportunities. He may be knocking at the door, knocking your feet from out from underneath you. But you know at each one of those moments you have a choice. When I was in my rebellion, God knocked on my door unsubtly about three or four times. I didn't pay attention. Then he used a very large piece of lumber and gratefully knocked me unconscious. But even at that moment, I've known other people who have turned another path. There's always a choice at that crisis moment, and it's only by the grace of God. 
but it's also by a desire of the heart. Do you want to know the God who saved you? Do you want to know His wisdom and His love? The new heart is there, but it has to be trained. God has promised by His Holy Spirit that He will give you the tools to train it, but you've got to want it. And as a congregation, one of the things that will make a difference as we welcome one another into worship is do we desire to have our hearts converted and transformed? Do we believe that there is still a long way for us to go and that it is only through fellowship with one another, through our dependency on Christ and through the study of God's Word and the wisdom that's been passed down from our brothers and sisters who've gone before that we will grow in our wisdom and knowledge of God Himself. Not knowledge for knowledge's sake, but knowledge of the one we love. Knowledge of what it means to be loved. You see, that becomes attractive to a world around us that isn't really interested in whether or not we know more or are right. They want to know if what we know has changed us. How we seek wisdom says as much about us as the wisdom that we seek. And how we act on that wisdom that we are granted through a new heart and knowledge of God will tell the world more about the knowledge than anything we can put in a syllogism or in a book. Well, so then how do you train it? If that's the opportunity, if there is this reality of of a choice in the midst of these uh, works of God, how do we train it? Well, again, verse 1 through 5, there's this earnest seeking. There's this earnest desire. All right, well, what does that look like? Well, I've got three little uh, questions that one might ask. One is a presupposition. The other is two questions that you can ask, sort of diagnostic questions. First of all, presuppose that you're going the wrong way. Presuppose that your heart is going to choose the wrong thing. It's just kind of being honest. My likelihood is to, first of all, pursue my own love. And my greatest love is me. Therefore, I'm going to make decisions that are going to help me. And so when I come here and I come to plant a church and, I, and I'm a minister, I've got to recognize that some of the things that I'm going to do is want to prove that I can plant a church. Why? For me. Because I get a sense of value and worth out of having been able to plant a church. So maybe the actions that I do, the different things that I do, are driven by a desire to get praise from my peers, that I pulled it off, that I was a church planner and particularized a church, and Lord knows what all else. And that I prepare my sermons not so much for your edification, but for you to tell me how good I am. That's all probably true on a regular basis. And to admit it is to begin to shine the light on it in such a way that even if and even when and even though my motives are mixed, God can still be glorified. Because I also do want to see you fed, and I want to see this church grow not for me, but for the reality of who has been called together and this community. And in my best moments, that's what I desire. Presupposing that you're going the wrong way or that your heart is being deceitful could be paralyzing. You can overthink things. I recognize that. And that's where we have to reaffirm the reality of the gospel. On the one hand, say, God, I presuppose that I'm likely to have mixed motives here. But at the same time, you've called me to act. You've called me to be involved in these people's lives. You've called me to this job. You've called me to raise these children. You've called me to 
whatever you've been called to do. Therefore, show me where my heart is wicked and also help me enjoy the reality of how that calling extends your love to other people. So presupposing that we're going to twist things doesn't mean we end up paralyzed. It means we go forward honestly, confessing that reality, but also knowing that God has designed this in such a way that we are utilized, even in our brokenness, for His good and for the good of those around us. That we don't have to get it all right before we act, because we'll never act. So we have that presupposition. But then also, diagnostically, ask yourself, what do you fear? Scripture here again reminds us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a sermon in itself. I've, I've broached that subject before, but this morning I want to ask you, what do you fear? Because oftentimes, what you fear is an exceedingly good indicator of what you love. So if you fear loss of security, I think there's really three that plague us in the church, in all humanity, but we do the log in our own eye first. Security, family, and knowledge. Many Christians that I know, and in my own life, one or all of those can be at play in my life. I am afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of not having enough money under the heading of security. Sometimes uh, we also, in our country and within, this church, within the church in America, we fear the loss of security in the context of God and country. Security of this country. Safe borders. So much so, and I don't know if you all saw this statistic recently, that 54% of people who go to church, evangelicals, thought that torture was okay in some cases. That's fear. People who have as our Lord and Savior the image of somebody nailed to a cross and tortured cannot be people who favor torture under any under circumstances. What's driving that? Well, I got to imagine it's some fear of a loss of security. And I understand that it's the government's responsibility to keep us safe. That's right and true. But within the walls of the church, within a Christian heart, we can't let our fears drive us to embrace views which are contrary to the reality of the gospel. We stand here this morning because of the blood poured out by the martyrs. We're called to love our enemies. There's no room for us to embrace that kind of treatment of another human being. It's not wise. So security, that love of security can cause us to go down unwise paths and show us what we truly love. Family, fear that our kids will go bad. Fear that our kids won't love us. Fear that fill in the blank. Now, there's nothing wrong with family. There's nothing wrong with security. There's nothing wrong with working hard and earning a living. But if you're fearful, if you make decisions based on fear of what might happen if you don't do X for your children or for your family or for your spouse or for your extended loved ones, then the likelihood is that that love of family has become a love disordered, out of priority from the love of God which should come first. Knowledge. We're so fearful that we're not right. 
so fearful of not knowing. We are such a culture obsessed with knowledge and having all the facts. And that's certainly true within the walls of the church and within the Reformed faith. we got to know. And a lot of times it feels like some of the divisions in our church, that's a nice way of saying I'm pretty sure this is true, we're so afraid of being wrong in our theology that we cut off each other's heads when we begin to disagree theologically. We're so fear, fearful of apostasy and unorthodoxy and the H word, heresy, that if any time some new idea pops up, Lord help you. What are we afraid of? Dear friends, the truth of God cannot be destroyed by the futile efforts of humanity. But we don't know it all yet. What are we afraid of? What do we love more than God? Ask yourself the question, what causes you to fear? And then ask yourself, what captures your imagination? What do you love? What do you find beautiful and alluring that you're willing to give yourself for in pursuit of it? What do you find your mind wandering to when you are at peace? What do you find your mind desiring to dwell on the most? That's what you love. So if that's the diagnostic questions, how do we then begin to grow? Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me and know my heart, O God. The Holy Spirit lives within you, and if you are willing, and if you ask, the Holy Spirit is faithful in showing you what you really love. And He'll do it at a measured pace. It'll feel painful at times. It will be disconcerting at others. It will be grievous. And other times it will be a joy because you'll get freedom from something that you didn't know was running your life for years and years and years. God promises to search our hearts and to know us. He already knows us. We read that this morning in Isaiah. He formed us for Pete's sakes. He knew us from the foundations of the world. He will carry us into our gray-haired days or bald head days. He knows us. And He is more than willing to lovingly and graciously, far more than I could, show you what it is you love more than Him. But then also, it's not just that, it's also putting yourself in relationship with people who are willing to ask and are asking the same questions. The Holy Spirit works through you and I talking to one another. He can speak to us in the quiet of our hearts, and He does, but He also regularly uses you in my life. We've got to put ourselves in relationships with people who are asking those questions. If your friends have never graciously and pointed out disordered love in your life, if they always agree with you, they're wonderful friends, but they ain't going to help you grow. The body of Christ, as we come alongside one another in relationship. Now this is not, I see you across the coffee room and I see something you, that you do that bugs me. And so called by the Holy Spirit, I go across to correct you. That is not the passing on of wisdom and opening our hearts to God. That's me telling you what you need to do. What I'm describing here is in relationship with one another, which you won't have with everybody in the church, and that's fine. 
but with those brothers and sisters that you are close to. And we've got to have somebody to speak truth into our lives. And our spouse is great, but sometimes they have a vested interest in things that might color their view one way or another. It needs to be a little bit wider just than our spouses. Who, can, who you know and they know you are seeking the Holy Spirit to show them the reality of our hearts so that I can speak into your life and you can speak into mine with humility and grace, knowing that I'm in the same situation you are. That's where we avoid that sort of riding in on a white horse and pietism that can sometimes happen when we confront one another about our mislabeled loves, misordered loves, our sins. It has to be done in context of relationship, in the context of 1 Corinthians 13. Isaiah tells us, you will start to know and love a God who is made real to you as you grow in wisdom. You will become wise, loving yourself and loving your neighbor in a way that is free, that is joyful, that is glorious. The more you get the beauty and the reality of the heart given to you that beats with the very love of God, the more the Holy Spirit opens that to you, then it will be said of us at Chehalem Valley that they must know God. Look at the way they love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would give us a new heart. Give us the courage to ask that you might transform our hearts. Teach us how to use the heart of flesh that you have given us that we might glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. At this time, if the ushers will come forward, we will take the tithes and offerings. Again, this is an opportunity for us to give back a portion of what God has given to us, the generosity He has poured out on us. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will love all, love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I Savior
As we come to the Lord's table again, it is my pleasure to remind you that this is not the table of Shehalem Valley Presbyterian Church. This is the table of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, all who claim the name of Christ, who desire His righteousness in replace of theirs, His heart to beat in their chest, this table is set for you. But if you have not come to a place where you're sure if you can trust if His heart is really all we say it is, then we are glad you are here. And we are here to answer questions as you are on this road. But at the same time, Scripture says that until you come to that place where you declare openly the reality that your hope is in Christ and not in yourself, then it makes sense for you to wait. Because what happens here is believers coming forward saying, this is my hope in righteousness. It's a public declaration of that dependence. So when you're ready to ask those questions or to have some of those questions answered, I'd love to talk with you. There's no great theological test to come to the Lord's table. All you need is need. All you bring is nothing. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, these are simple elements of wine and bread.